Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a podcast where we talk about how tech and innovation are making us healthier, wealthier, and wiser. Okay, maybe not wiser. I mean, we've all seen the caliber of intellectual that gets millions of followers and a blue check mark on Twitter these days. But today, Matthew Feeney and I are joined by a man wise in the ways of DC tech policy, Mr. Will Reinhardt, the, the director of tech and innovation policy at the American Action Forum. Welcome yeah. to the show, Will. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, uh, Will, you have an extensive biography working on tech issues for various and sundry. about a decade now, a little over a decade, yep. I mean, everything. I saw Tech Freedom, Mm -hmm. Internet Law and Posse Foundry, Mercatus Center, and some advisory boards for the FCC. Yeah, advisory boards, the SCC, CAC. uh, Formerly worked for an organization that... um, uh, it was called the uh, Progress and Freedom Foundation. It's kind of actually kind of how I got my my start in all this. Um, was was an intern, so I was a lowly intern in 2009. I was coming actually to this building right when it was finished and talking to other uh, tech nerds. So yeah, I've been in this for for a little while and I've been been studying and you know doing economic analysis and that's kind of my background. So. Yeah, it's been it's been an inter- interesting decade so far. So spending a decade uh, in this kind of uh, inside the beltway tech policy um, locus, uh, what ha- have you seen Congress like your median Congress person over the course of those years? Do they know more about tech now? Are they more tech savvy now than they were a decade ago? And maybe you can talk about like the the pre- preconceptions that the ordinary American Joe Blow yeah. public have about Congress when it comes, Congress people when it comes to technology. Yeah, I think that I mean, just like anything else, there's a high amount of variability when it comes to uh, congressional members um, relating to their knowledge and tech expertise. So I, mean, I think there's probably a couple different ways to think about this. One is to obviously when you're when you're talking to Congress members, you're not really talking to Congress members. You're talking typically to their staff, and staff typically do have a pretty decent knowledge and expertise of tech issues, generally speaking, I, I would say, I mean, especially because a lot of them are pretty young. Um, the the committees of jurisdiction that are important here, so like energy and commerce and typically judiciary, I think they're pretty well educated. And I've actually had a couple pieces on this and, and kind of thinking through if we really do need more tech expertise. And I, I, I tend to think that, that those committees of jurisdiction actually do a pretty good job, all things considered. But I'm also, uh, when it comes to this kind of tech expertise, and I know there's been a lot of criticisms of you know, of um, Senator Lindsey Graham and um, I'm forgetting who else recently was criticized for some of this. Uh, but uh, Michael Chabot was 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 criticized for this recently. I, I think that, that one way to think about this kind of relationship between Congress and technology is also to realize that that fundamentally uh, congressional members and their staff are also very communication heavy as well, which I think is very, very important. So, you know, when when there's criticisms of 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 Zuckerberg, people want, you know, a very kind of astute, very narrow vision of of what that tech, you know, they, there is this kind of narrow vision of what that tech criticism from Congress should look like. And yet people often ask, you know, Zuckerberg or you will know, ask, for example, um, Pachai, who is recently, you know, this is Google CEO, you know, oh, you know, look at my Google rankings or my Facebook rankings. But I think that actually is is evidence of the of a very important fact of Congress, which most people don't recognize, which congressional offices have this kind of dual role, which is not just 
technology and assessment and talk, you know, policy assessment, but also their political actors who are using these tools. And so that's the reason why they care about these in kind of more mundane, like SEO type of ways. And that's search engine optimization, you know, why they care about it from like a marketing perspective, which I think to a lot of young people like, you know, and millennials like myself, it really just feels weird that they're worried about these kind of placements within Google or placements within Facebook. But again, these are tools that they use. So these kind of these dual roles of both use, but also they see how those, you know, how other actors are using their, you know, using their visages and their like, you know, their their likeness online. So there's this I think there's this more interesting pull and push with technology that that is a, a little bit more complex than than a lot of criticism, which is that that just generally the congressional members aren't very educated. And they feel like they can be pretty perform it's it can be performative at, at times. Very much where so. Very much so. You're a you know, you're a senator. You don't want to seem you want to seem like you know what you're talking about, but you don't want to seem too tech savvy. Because remember your median voter perhaps your median constituent donor is going to be a little bit older you know, like yeah. the, the whole kids these days thing yeah, plays yeah, well yeah. with your constituency. Exactly. So by saying stuff like, oh, my grandson was showing me what I did on, <laughs> the, on the Facebook there, it's a way of – that's a performative playing to a, to an audience. And exactly. so we see that as some people in our 20s and 30s and say mm-hmm. these, these dunderheads don't know what they're talking about. Exactly, yeah. But they're doing a political performance, yeah. Well, I do think part of the problem is that – when you say something like technology policy, you might as well be saying something like economic policy. Yeah, it's just no, such a huge, so. broad thing. So the meetings that I'm like, I'm sure Will and I have will be staff who say, well, my boss wants to fix X problem or is worried <laughs> yes. about X, yes. right? And that can be a whole plethora of things. But it turns out that, uh, at least speaking for myself, you'll have people with humanities degrees sitting around a table in Washington with other typically uh, other humanities degree people or lawyers. Uh, there aren't too many actual full-on technologists working in a lot mm-hmm. of these staffs. Uh, and they're thinking a lot about law and policy. And I yep. think that's a big uh, challenge. And, and I know some people have discussed, well, uh, one, should Congress and the government make a push to actually make sure that congressional staff can hire actual technologists, more yep. computer scientists? And uh, secondly, are we sure that would even make much of a difference? Uh, yeah. And these are two – I mean this is a huge, huge question. This is something that um, that I, I've been thinking about a lot recently, especially with this kind of push, especially in the last Congress for more tech expertise. And it seems – also, that this is going to be a big thing for for the the Democrats in the House this year. They have even, you know, in the original uh, the rules, which I think were just, um, which were ju- the the House rules, which I think were just um, adopted. I think yesterday, yesterday right? yeah. yeah. Uh, part of it includes this provision to basically modernize the the tech element, or at least to modernize some tech elements of the House. So, I mean, there there is the, there is this concern that perhaps some members don't have the technical expertise. I mean. There's two things I would mention about this, or at least one broad thing I would mention about the, this tech expertise issue, is that the more that you get, I think that there is a worry by people who are who are thinking through this tech expertise. I mean, there's there's kind of a, a balancing act here. There is clearly uh, worry that that yeah, of course that 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 members probably don't have the technical computer science degrees. When they're thinking through some of the legislation, and that does create a problem uh, when you're actually writing real legislation that's going to be impacting these. But then again, I'm also of the of the nature that perhaps the fact that you don't actually know as much 
about the technology makes you a little bit more humble in what you're going to be able to do and and your likeliness and your likelihood to regulate. Humility so, on the hill. This is yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and then kind of with th- thinking through that, I mean, do we – I don't know. I, I really don't know if I want to give congressional staff – I don't know that it's the best thing to give congressional staff all the expertise in the world to understand how to how to prohibitively regulate every single technology that they encounter. That to me seems to be a bit of a problem. And again, we don't see this with every single technology anyway. You know, you don't you do have some congressional staff who know a lot about, for example, you know, like oil and energy, but you don't have the te- you don't have petrologists <laughs> on staff, you know, doing that kind of work yeah. as well. So I don't know. I, I there's this push and pull for me on on these issues, and I, I um one of my big things for 2019 is to not really is to to not succumb to binaries that say we need X or Y or that good you know that this thing is good or bad. You can have both elements of same, of the same thing. So the the push for tech expertise, I think we should also recognize that. The more tech expertise that you get, there may be some beneficial outcomes, but there's also probably likely to be some some pretty negative outcomes, which means more legislation and the things that I think could be very detrimental, especially to uh, permissionless innovation, which I think is a big key thing that that is going to be a, a key issue in 2019. So you mentioned that uh, mentioned the word yesterday. We should note that we're recording this on ooh, January 4th. Yeah. Yes. So the, yes. the new Congress was or the House was sworn in yesterday. Yes. Uh, so, Will, what's uh, looking at the incoming uh, new new folks in, in the House and uh, also perhaps also the, the people who have left, yep. what – what does the incoming class uh, mean for innovation uh, and technology policy broadly? Uh, have some of these new people said anything interesting or is it too too early to tell? I think it's a little bit too early to tell. Uh, the the For various reasons, I seem to have been following a lot more with what's happening in the Senate just because it seems like some of the, the, the senators have been a little bit more um, outspoken on some of these, you know, um, Alexandria Ocasio Ortiz. I always forget. Cortez. How- Cortez. 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 I'm sorry. I I always again. We were just yeah, joking yeah. about this. I always see her as AOC now. So I'm the always AOC. like, yeah. <laughs> she seems to be pretty, um, or at least interested in doing some, um, some. Some dancing, uh, <laughs> yes. Dan- <laughs> well, also some. She wants to probably regulate big tech giants. So mm-hmm. you know that the. the that type of of element it seems to have it seems to exist within a lot of new house members and in, in the same same way that you've seen some of the old you know leadership also within the the senate and and in the house you know you've seen a lot of the mentions of potentially regulating technology companies and that, that i mean that's a pretty broad again as we kind of laid out here that's that's a that's a that's that includes a whole bunch of different things which i know we're going to get into there is hopefully, however, there there is some some positive things from the new Congress, which is that you know uh, that we do have a bit of a younger, at least in the House side, we do you know we do typically have a bit of a younger element, which I think could be a little bit more interesting. That could turn out kind of bad in the sense that there is kind of a bit of a you know, especially for our generation, there's a little bit more negativity towards these kinds of tools than I think is probably warranted. But there's just generally it seems a bigger appetite for the first time in really the the majority of the time that I've been working in in this space. There's I feel like that the, this this Congress, there really is just a bigger appetite to do 
something and really anything on tech. Um, and that includes a lot, you know, privacy and AI regulation and and a whole bunch of other spaces and, you know, broadband. It just seems perhaps because a lot of the other low-hanging fruit has already been picked, but also that it, it seems to be much more of a of a of an issue, a topic at hand, especially regulating tech tech companies. I'd like to get your thoughts on what I think many uh, Americans view as the biggest tech news of the last year, mm -hmm. uh, especially as it relates to Congress. So yeah. many people remember that the CEOs of the big tech giants were hauled before uh, different uh, committees for hearings. Uh, and these big tech giants have been the uh, at the forefront of debates that seem to be happening about – uh, namely so-called censorship, right? But uh, also yeah. antitrust is is another thing. Uh, and, and this is actually, I think, raised a really interesting opportunity to talk about the legislation that allows the, the internet to work as we know it. Uh, so, Will, could you actually explain to, to listeners <laughs> who might have been in headlines heard of uh, Section 230, which yeah. seems to get discussed all, all the time, uh, what is that, what does it do, and why does it seem to be cropping up so often in these kind of conversations? Yeah, so Section 230 is actually a specific section of, a, of, of what was called the Communications Decency Act, um, which I think was either 1995 or 1996. I always forget this one. I think it is 1996. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, so CDA, and it's literally CDA Section 230, was part of a bigger legislative package that really came, out, came about because of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. And so these two these – two, Acts kind of came together and, and Communication Decency Act itself had actually a lot of elements of effectively, um, you know, controlling various elements of the Internet to make it more family friendly. And a lot of that was 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 basically kicked out at the Supreme Court level in a series of really important cases. But uh, what what what's what's since kind of has survived is this this Section 230, which is a um, which basically it. It limits the liability of these platforms, these large platforms to uh, to any, you know, content that is going on there on their on their on their network. Originally, it seems it meant really to be to apply to ISPs, but the way that it's written, it seems to apply to ISPs and content providers. I mean, it does apply to both ISPs and content providers. And really what it was allowed and meant to do is really to these, you know, for these these network providers, both ISPs effectively and and kind of these large content players that we now know as like as Facebook and Twitter and and Google, it, it allows them to do a bit of editing and, and but also doesn't necessarily require them to go after every single element of uh, potentially, you know, nefarious content that is that's going through their their networks which you know there's there's some interesting elements obviously that that i think could change in this in this next congress i should say that that this and it's generally considered it's called a you know an intermediary um it's an intermediary liability such that the 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 network itself is not is not liable for the content that's going across the network that however isn't isn't absolute though and it should be noted that there are a lot of carve outs to that you know copyright is carved out from it so that you can't you know they have to they have due diligence they're required to do due diligence on these copyrighted elements um uh 
you know, the, the recently there was a uh, there was a change to the law that effectively allowed, um, you know, these uh, content that potentially could be uh, uh, used for sex trafficking. And this was, you know, FOSTA sets uh, um, last year. So there there are some carve outs to the law themselves. But there's a kind of a bigger, broader question about CDA Section 230 and whether or not we should generally change it. And, um, you know, it's it's uh, potentially a big, big um, operational change. Yeah, I think it's perhaps worth noting that that the, these kind of discussions on 230 have emerged uh, out of debates about interference in, in our elections. People are upset yeah. about bots. And mm-hmm. uh, I believe one of the original drafters or at least supporters of uh, 230, Senator Ron Wyden, has actually expressed openness to this kind of mm-hmm. uh, stuff. and. I don't think it's uh, hyperbolic to say that Section 230 really does allow most of what we view as social media to exist. I mean, I think what Will's uh, saying, uh, maybe an example would be good. So uh, if you post illegal or harmful content on your Facebook wall, uh, Facebook can't be sued or have action taken against them because of that, which is different than uh, if if Will wrote something uh, – libelous in uh, a newspaper yeah that, that would be a different kind of proceeding is that right is that yeah generally yeah. speaking though there are this is a um there is a lot of case law that come that comes into play here so this isn't uh, the I, I would say that that generally speaking that is that's correct however there is again there's a lot of case law that goes behind this which i mean if you really want to do a, an in-depth review, I would suggest that would be actually a really interesting podcast. Mm. <laughs> um, I, however, am not a, a lawyer, uh, a Section 230 lawyer, but that space is, you know, the 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 big question I think that that people are trying to grapple with right now is whether or not certain kinds of effectively state law torts, which exist out there right now, like defamation, false light, public disclosure of private facts, if those type of things should. Um, get a not a carve out but should also now be included such that the large uh providers the large you know intermediaries as they're known they should be effectively liable or have to you know have some element of of um of taking these this this type of content down um there's also i think kind of an interesting again there there's other interesting potential carve outs one of them would and i know that this has been talked about is is something related to to opioid um the opioid epidemic so if there's kind of you know any material um I forget exactly what the how that this bill would be defined, but the conversation basically is, well, you know, we obviously have these opioid problems. There's it seems that a lot of this happens in online spaces where you kind of have suggested advertisements from, you know, from some from some doctors. It may happen, for example, in some, you know, um, groups within, say, for, for example, Facebook or Twitter or even even, you know, on 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 Google, you know. And so the idea is then to then to attack <clears throat> attack the opioid problem through that by by making it such that these platform providers have to kind of go after these, you know, uh, some of these uh, what it seems like there's online opioid um uh, I don't want to say peddlers, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, or, uh, something along those lines. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of conversation about about changing this. I, again, I'm I don't know. I don't really see. I mean, there's there's a lot of really interesting cases that are related to this that are are that that test really the waters on a lot of Section 230 issues. I also, I mean, generally, I think that the 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 the, the fact that 
platforms haven't really been required to be liable on a lot of these things. A lot of these things has led to a general flowering of the internet and, and has, you know, increased content pretty dramatically and has given America its own kind of, uh, has given America really a, a, a leg up in, in this. I also really do worry because having, you know, having spent a number of, a number of years, it's, you know, and I've, you know, done enough traveling to Europe and, and talked to enough people in the UK to know that, you know, a lot of times when you're talking about these defamation lawsuits, it really is, uh, you know, there's some really unfortunate cases in Italy and some unfortunate cases in Germany that that some of these defamation cases are far more political in nature. So it really kind of undermines, you know, political conversations and kind of, you know, the 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 political f- uh, free flowing of, of thought. So I, I don't know. There There's a lot to there's there's a in conversation. There's a conversation to be had here about Section 230. But I also really do worry about our efforts to try to get rid of the censorship problem or try to you know, root out the censorship censorship problem through Section 230 um, modifications. I think our uh, actually our first article for the Building Tomorrow column that we have on mm-hmm. L.org uh, was about SESTA-FOSTA and the unintended ill consequences that th- this was on the front end right before or right as it was passing. Yep. And the, part of the concern was we're going to puncture a new hole in Section 230. And there already were some carve outs for copyright and, and whatnot. Yeah. But a lot of content moderation beyond con- beyond copyright was it was frowned upon. The idea was that if we make an exception and say, well, because we're so worried about sex trafficking, we're going to weaken this kind of protection yeah. uh, for platforms. Well, what what will be it sets a precedent. People will start arguing for other yep. carve outs yep. and. Uh, and then also the unintended con- ill consequences. We've already seen a lot of that come to light. Uh, it doesn't look like it's been very effective at actually combating sex trafficking. And it's been very effective at at basically removing uh, prostitutes from advertising online, shutting down forums that prostitutes use, mm-hmm. um, which then actually shoves them into a black market, uh, which they're, they're more likely to be out on the street rather than, you know, advertising online. So lots of ill consequences. uh uh, on that end. But I think the concern here, I mean, I think it's interesting to bring up proposals for new carve outs. I and mean, we're already yep. seeing that in, in possibly in 2019 that, well, yep. because in SESTA-FOSTA, we punctured a hole in 230. Why not do so for the for opioid dealers on, yep. online? Um, and if that goes, why not this? Why not that? Why not? You know, I mean, you, you can see the kind of uh, slippery slope. Yeah. I mean, here. Joe Manchin is uh, Senator Joe Manchin has suggested this incoming Senator Josh uh, Howley has mm-hmm. has mm-hmm. said that we need to kind of take a take a new look at Section 230 and concerns about deplatforming um, Ben Sass, uh, Senator Ben Sass for, you know, um, uh, being an interesting senator. Um, and I think, you know, he's he he often provides kind of a um, sometimes a balancing act. Uh, he himself has also suggested that perhaps we should be talking about deplatforming as well. So or that, you know, what the, this relationship between Section 230 and deplatforming and really what can be done, at least at the federal level. So, yeah, um, yeah Ben had a uh, had an op ed about this not too long ago. I'm, I'm fairly certain I think it was in the on on uh, uh, on NRO. But uh, yes, there is this. I mean, there is a very real you know, oftentimes the slippery uh, slippery slope fallacy isn't really particularly great to go down. But I actually do think this is one of the few cases where we're seriously talking about changing these uh this kind of fundamental law 
Uh, also, at the same time, I mean, to you know, not just to you know, not just to say too much about you know Republicans like Josh Hawley and 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 Ben Sass, but you know, again, uh, Manchin and uh, Mark Warner has also talked a little bit about this. So his white paper that had a long list of potential regulatory bills, which was I think it was like fifteen pages and included something like twenty twenty uh potential <laughs> regulatory uh bills that could be out there, which was just uh to me a, a little shocking. Um but he also talks very much about this, about perhaps, you know, state state torts and as I mentioned kind of earlier, perhaps state torts should be should should have carve outs here within section two thirty. So it is a it's an important I think a really important thing to be watching for this year. But the the Warner paper, if I recall uh, was it sometime over the summer, right? August, yes, August, yeah, right? yeah. And uh, but some of it was just uh, it seems to me just unworkable given the Constitution of the United States, like this sort of the but the introduction of something like a European right to be forgotten, yeah. and, and of course, the, yes. the staff will say, Look, hey, we're just torn with ideas here. Uh, and may- maybe it's worth I-, I think it'd be good to get Will's thoughts on uh, all of this talk about what we've been discussing. Uh, solutions to uh, problems, right? Some that might be imaginary and some that might be actual, right? So, yes, yes. Uh, what are the – yeah. Right. So some people are, are concerned the about these big tech companies on monopolies. Uh, mm-hmm. People are worried that these tech companies are violating our privacy. Uh, some people are worried that these big companies uh, for all intents and purposes are the public forum and are censoring uh, whole swaths of the American political uh, commentariat. Yep. Uh, so we, we've talked a little bit about the the regulatory pushes that that some members have, but uh, are they swinging at ghosts here, or uh, I don't know what the metaphor I'm looking for is? But yeah. uh, are, are these actual problems that uh, Congress should be dealing with? That's never stopped Congress. In thirty seconds or less, <laughs> are these problems? I, you know, that's never really stopped Congress from trying to right. to enact policy and legislation uh, based on. On perceived problems, I mean, you you hit on at least three different ones here. One of them was you know the monopoly question, which I think is really big. Another one is this privacy question, and then another one is obviously this public forum, which I think kind of relates to the the question of of censorship, just generally speaking. You know, on the, the monopolies, I've written a lot about the question of monopolies. There, um, and you know, I have I'm, like two weeks. I'm going to do a, a talk about this question of monopolies. It's really a difficult question when you look at at least some of these major platforms when you're talking about monopolies in the traditional sense. Because typically, when you look at monopolies, okay, you're looking at a um, a monopolist who is raising prices to effectively decrease input. You don't really have too much, you know. When you're when you're talking about a platform on one side of the platform, you really don't have any prices per se. Right. So Facebook's really, free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Facebook and Google are free, and Twitter is free. So you don't really have the traditional monopoly problem. And then you get to well, okay, but there's only effectively a single provider in each of these in each of these um, you know, in each of these spaces. But then you ask, okay, well, then if if there's only a single provider, then what you're actually competing on is advertising for example so perhaps the monopoly industry is advertising but you know um there's good reason to believe that in that uh that and there's some really interesting um uh nber research on this that you know the more effectively when it comes to online platforms so first off you have to consider the fact that online advertising is not the only version of advertising there's you know, TV advertising, radio advertising, newspaper advertising, it's dwindling, but it's still there. 
So you look at all advertising, okay, still, you know, I, I forget the percentage, but it's still not the, it's not still not the absolute majority. And even if, when it is the, you know, when it, when you are considering still digital advertising, it's still, um, the question is as well, okay, does, does this, would this, does the current structure increase prices and decrease the benefit to the other side? You know, does it, is there some kind of impact to the consumer of advertising that we can solve? And when you start asking questions of remediability, you know, what is the, what is the problem of advertising that we're trying to solve within this bigger monopoly question? That again is not really an easy answer because the more, interestingly enough, the more concentrated a platform is, the more information you have about all of the users. And because you have a because you've effectively solved this kind of weird asymmetry problem, you uh, actually do have better advertising prices for a more and broader platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I can send this report to you guys if you're yeah, interested. Yeah, I yeah. actually was very, very intrigued by this. Yeah, this series link of, in the notes. Yeah. Yeah. And so monop- the monopoly question is is not – it's not easy. It's not an easy question. And to, to – you know, I don't want to take too long on this point, but the FTC has been has been grappling with this question of, well, what does monopoly really look like in kind of these big platform providers? I think they're now on their – I want to say like eighth or ninth of these hearings, but they spent the majority of 2018 and I you know, was watching a lot of them – Going through these hearings and asking, okay, what are the what are the monopoly questions that we're talking about with these large platform providers? And it's not it's not clear. It's really yeah, not yeah. as clear as I think we would hope. And then the other problem is, well, what do you do about it? Well, and, and I, to that to that question, uh, we had uh, Mike Masnick from Tech Dirt come yeah. on a, a couple episodes ago, and uh, the the irony is is that sometimes efforts to combat this perceived monopoly can actually backfire and entrench monopoly. So he noted like the EU's digital copyright scheme, uh, which among other things, whether you call it link tax or not, part of the intent was to, was to take power from uh, um, or kind of market share from big aggregators like Google when it comes to showing like Google news and clips and links to articles and trying to shift that like digital advertising market back down to the papers themselves, to, yep. to online papers. But the net effect of the rules, even in the, the few short months since the rules have been proposed and as part, parts of it has been passed by the, by the, by the EU, um, has been to actually shift more power yep. to Google. It's actually the thing meant to you know, erode their, their monopoly has actually empowered the, the, this, this monopoly. Yes. And so it, it, we have to be cautious when we get into questions of like, how can you try to regulate against natural monopoly? Are you just going to end up fueling the beast? And, and it's, an, it's an open question. I mean, uh, what, what's been proposed here? And so we've had hearings in Congress and they've drug yeah. a bunch of uh, mm-hmm. reluctant CEOs in front of them. And it all makes for, I guess, I don't know if decent television, but it's made for yeah, television content. Um, what's actually being proposed? I mean, like what's what are they talking about doing? I mean, so far, yes. it's just been a bunch of show. I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, probably the most uh, important piece and, and probably the one. So there's a couple when we're talking about privacy legislation and and it should be noted, there's a bit of a even though these are obviously very associated, there's I, I think it is important to kind of separate out this privacy question and, and privacy concerns, which really are, you know, GDPR and 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 CCPA, which is the California Consumer Privacy Act. You know, those types of pieces of legislation really need to be separated from these larger kind of antitrust questions, even though when we talk about antitrust and monopolies, the the big tech platforms tend to get, you know, just kind of thrown in that bucket. 
Now, um, obviously, we haven't seen a lot of legislation yet because we're, I, you know, currently we're, I think, the second day of, right, of the yeah. new Congress. Yeah, so, yeah. Give them time. Give them yeah, time. of course, of course. But uh, there were a couple pieces of legislation that came out the towards the end of last year and and throughout the throughout the 115th Congress, which was the last Congress. Um, Senator um, Brian Schatz had a bill which was called the Data Care Act of 2018. That I think was it. As far as the overall pieces of legislation that have the possibility of of passing that, um, even though I think it does have some problems, it, that is probably, you know, that does have it seems like pretty broad um, buy in. There's about 15 different uh, senators who are who are who have bought into this. Um, so there's 15 different co-sponsors. I want to say that it is bipartisan with the co-sponsorship, but don't quote me on that. Um, still. Uh, Schatz has really has has shown himself to be hugely important in this space. He's you know a senator. He's I think generally I, I find him and his staff pretty pretty knowledgeable about these issues. And they're 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 um, while again while I disagree, I, I think that he, that piece of legislation, the Data Care Act of 2018, is probably among the most important to be watching. So it, you know there's a couple things it does, but the main thing it does is it creates this kind of this new um, set of duties. So that creates a duty of care, duty of loyalty, and then a duty of confidentiality. And and the the even though he doesn't say say it within the piece of legislation, the name for this is called an information fiduciary. And this is an idea that um, a law professor named Jack Balkin has been pushing for for quite some time. And and Tim Wu has been pushing, and John Lindsay Train have been talking about this idea of of an information fiduciary. So this is a really, I think, probably the first piece of legislation that really exemplifies that. Again, this is on the Senate side. Um, the other one that it, I think. Um, again, it has problems. It's an, it's, um, it's another important bill to be watching is the browser act because, um, and we're still waiting to see how it kind of separates out, but it seems as though, uh, Senator Blackburn, who was previously last Congress, a representative is now a Senator. She is probably going to be in the judiciary. And that means that, that it looks like she'll probably be pushing the browser act within the Senate, the browser act, um, really creates a lot of opt-in requirements for data collection and kind of goes towards more of like an opt-in data collection realm. So it's a little bit so while Schatz's bill is a little bit more focused on these kind of information fiduciaries and creating these new duties, you know, duty to care for like I said, duty to care, duty to loyalty, and duty to confident confidentiality, um, hers is a little bit more focused on these kind of opt-in and data collection questions. So it's a little bit of a different perspective and a little bit of a different approach to each one of them. And of course, there are some other senators. And again, a lot of this a lot of this work has been done in the Senate so far just because you know, there's they have been thinking about this for I think for a little bit longer and also there just hasn't been as much mix up in in the in the um in the leadership, but there's also a um it seems like and I maybe I missed it, but it seems like there's also a bill coming from from Wicker and um, Senator Wicker and Senator Blumenthal. So that would be bipartisan legislation as well. Um, that, you know, some of these proposals really do worry me pretty extensively because I think the real big impact, which is what you've seen in GDPR, is an entrench entrenchment of the biggest players because it creates, as um, one of your colleagues, uh, Julian Sanchez, said, you know, it's a, con- uh, it's a, uh, a consent monopoly. It really does require these these platforms or it requires the entire system to be run on consent. You have to have opt-in approval that, you know, you have to say, yes, I want this to happen to my data. And because the biggest players are the ones who can consistently get that consent, 
they're the ones who have access to the information, whereas the new entrants, the people who potentially could come in and kind of disrupt those big tech tech providers really are going to face bigger hurdles. So there are clear impacts to these laws if they actually do get passed. There's also the so-called Internet Bill of Rights that's been proposed by, I guess, Congressman Khanna, right? Uh, yes. That, that includes – uh, some of this opt-in stuff, but uh, and given that the the Democrats now have uh, the House, do you think we'll see movement on those kind of proposals? I, you know, the the two things that at least on the at least on the tech front that the, the Democrats have talked pretty extensively about are broadband development um, and rural broadband development. At least this is what they've said to some of the media that I follow pretty closely. So, you know, the two big things are just rural broadband development question. And then the other one is privacy and just doing something on privacy. So the end package, I think, is going to be interesting to see because it could kind of combine a lot of these efforts. It could take a little bit from the, you know, from the Browser Act and sort of the opt-in approvals. It could take a little bit from the information fiduciaries. It could take a little bit of these, the 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 Bill of Rights from from Repcana and, and kind of, you know, mix them all together and see, you know, kind of create an American version of the GDPR, which I know that a lot of people want. Um, there's obviously a lot of problems with some elements of the GDPR. But there's also a lot of organizations and, and advocacy organizations who are really pushing for for a comprehensive, as they call it, a comprehensive baseline legislation that effectively creates one law to rule them all. <laughs> Which, That's not obvious. Uh, yeah, no, 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 not at all, not at all. Yeah. Um, you know, in the in the what we're faced with on the other side is a very real deadline, which we haven't really mentioned at all. Uh, and I've kind of hinted at, which is California. California has a has a law, it has CCPA. It has a um, it has, you know, really the first privacy law um, proposed by any state in, in the United States. It will come into effect in 2020. So the beginning of 2020. So we have potentially one year to do something federally. There's really big problems with that law itself, just in definitions, about 10,000 words long. It's among the most complicated pieces of legislation I've ever seen. It's pretty poorly written from in a lot of, you know, they've already had, I think that about every, so it was passed in June. Um, yeah, let me see here. My notes say June 28th, um, CCPA was passed. Within a month or within two months, there was two major amendments that were passed to it. And they've been <laughs> passing amendments and like proposing various amendments because of just, I think, clearly how poorly it's written and how how it's really not been thought through. Um, and we'll, we'll see. I mean, there is – unfortunately, uh, there is a, an appetite for other cities. New York City has said that they, they want to create their own privacy. So it means New York City would have privacy and – California would have privacy. We'd assume probably Hawaii would probably do this. Illinois, you know, my home state would probably do this. Who's Washington, gonna, who's going to be able to keep up with this this patchwork of privacy laws yeah. against big incumbents yep. and the, the the small insurgents are going to have exactly exactly the big yeah. the big the the big players will be able to do something. Um, well, they'll be they'll be able to deal with it. I think pretty. Yep. Not easily. They'll they'll have to spend a lot of money to deal with it, but they have they have the money to deal with it. About the, the competitive advantage, though. Exactly. Or, you know, yeah. um, but it also affects a whole bunch of industries that that you wouldn't think that would be included. So, like retail would be included in mm. this. You know, Walmart would be included in mm. in things like this. And um, 
and basically anyone that's doing any work on data at all, any mm. company that does any stores any information related to data <laughs> who doesn't i mean right yeah, that's what i don't think that it's consumers crazy. and people who are really pushing for this yeah. understand that, that if you're in a if you're in a modern business context every single company has some sort of data and if you have to if you have to if you have to abide by all of the uh potential regulations that that or i shouldn't say potential regulations because we really don't know um you know, I I, I want to say this that, that I was I was talking to a to a to a company, and they said that you know they don't know if they can even you know I'm not going to say who they are, but they said they don't even really know if they can comply with this. They'll be defensible, but they don't know if they can comply because yeah, yeah. the law itself can't so be complied vague. with. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It's just that there's so many even. conflicts within the law <laughs> that you can't even comply with it. Wow, you can't do yeah. two things at the same time. So. They'll be defensible, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's what a lot of companies are looking to be is defensible but not compliant. And that's – I think that's a big, big issue. There's a lot of lawyers who become really wealthy uh, defending those. <laughs> and yeah. it's, of course, a whole bunch of lawyers who help to write the law in California and and a whole bunch of the, um, you know, the class action lawsuits, which are a big, big question within California because it kind of opens up the door to – it opens up the door to pretty huge class action lawsuits, which, of course, the plaintiff's bar really, really likes. So, yeah, there's there's this opens up a really, to me, a very worrisome bag of worms that I really just I hope we kind of deal with. And, and federal legislation is probably going to have to be, unfortunately, the way that we deal with it. So I think our listeners are going to share a lot of those apprehensions. Um, and we have been very focused on social media, uh, online platforms, uh, kind of that's yeah. been our tech focus here in the conversation so far. Um, but I'm also interested in picking your brain wheel about um, potential overlap. So if you're a libertarian just or just libertarian loving listener to this show, uh, what aspects of overlap are there with a newly empowered, like a representative con is a very progressive mm-hmm. uh, a representative and there's going to be a, a, a greater willingness to, to – to regulate things yeah, coming out yeah, of this yeah. tech regulation out of this Congress. Are there areas of overlap where you can see kind of more libertarian leaning folks mm-hmm. and tech progressives like, like Kana and others where we share interests? And maybe this isn't online yeah. digital content, but it's, yeah, I don't know, driverless cars or encryption or drones or are, are there areas where we can see stuff that libertarians can say, that's good regulation on the horizon that we can work across the kind of ideological divide on. Yeah, I think that, that generally speaking, the goals are are I, I, I think that that for a lot of progressives, that the end goal is innovation. Now, I think there's a big disagreement between, you know, effectively, I don't want to do this as an us and them, but between sure. us and them on how we get there. Yeah, um, I, th- I I am I'm hesitant in the. In the general communication, um, advanced communication, and 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 tech space, um, I'm I think that the history of of tech regulation really speaks to the problems of this kind of regulatory solutionism, and I do see a lot of people on you know that are that consider themselves on the left or you know would be considered you know um, leftists or progressives that who who really do kind of you know ultimately believe in in that that that. You know, that smart regulations really, really, really can, you know, create better outcomes. But, you know, there are other countries. And I think that the the big thing to look at are is countries and especially I think the European Union really is kind of the big foil to the United States in this, that that 
there are there's again the the European Union provides an example of what the kind of the the solutionism the regulatory solutionism mindset really gets you. So I think that we generally agree that we want innovation and that we want you know we want kind of ro- a robust civic society and that we all agree that we want you know that we want to um, generally empower people with technology. I think there is a very big and divergent view, and I hope that people would understand there's a big and divergent view between. Um, but between the those two places when it comes to the means to doing it, I would much rather see, you know, perhaps, um, more transparency. So, you know, you have disclosure over the kind of information that is generally collected. I'm, I'm not particularly opposed to those, those mm-hmm. sorts of things, mm-hmm. you know, transparency about what is, what is being known about you. But at the same time, when you do look at how consumers interact online, they, they, they tend to go towards these larger platforms because the larger platforms actually do give them the access and the ability to to change around their privacy settings. So, you know, a, a kind of one of the best and underreported polls came from Reuters last year that found that something like 75% or, you know, almost 80% of all people actually do know their privacy settings and do know how to access it, but they just don't they don't really do that. And that's because these large platforms are are actually there's a lot of opportunities to go in and kind of change around your information. A lot of people don't do it, and a lot of people do actually do this. But um, making that more complicated, I don't think necessarily gets you to a better world. And there's also this big question, which, again, has been hinted in this conversation about the, the First Amendment, which is that the every time that you the one of the big problems with with baseline privacy legislation is something that Eugene Volokh has talked about in probably I think probably one of the most important papers, which is that the, you know, Limiting the right of a platform to speak about you is a First Amendment violation, and it is. Mm. You know, Mm. a lot of the privacy legislation is going to have to come up against the First Amendment, and that's also something that I think that if you're more, you know, more liberty minded, that you really need to do. You probably need to be thinking about. Well, wait a second. The fact that that these privacy legislations, even if you do believe in kind of curtailing the largest platforms, these privacy legislations uh, or you know privacy proposals rather might actually kind of undermine this this important uh right to free speech that that is that that really does need to be upheld so i'm uh, yeah this is going to be an interesting year and it's going to be a weird year and i unfortunately i think it's going to be for for people who are who are in this space for myself included i think it's going to be kind of a bad year Mm Yeah, well, uh, on that note, I, 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 uh, I thought, well, we could do a whole other podcast. Glad to have you back on this. Um, yeah, the, 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 the privacy paradox that you've uh, just mentioned, because I could, yeah. I don't know, I could talk for England on uh, privacy and tech. That's, that's, um, but uh, I think there'll be plenty of other opportunities. Uh, I do think that we need to be careful when we're talking about privacy and tech of um, not assuming the right kind of privacy that people should want or have and yeah. thinking actually you know you don't you don't even know how bad this is going to be so let us step in and restrict the amount of information you're sharing um it's much better to i think have it on control uh paul i don't know if you wanted to yeah no i i think that's a great place to lead this we'll have to have you back on will thanks uh, for well, thanks yeah. for coming on of course of um, course even um, by, we, the, by the way, I'm a huge fan of this podcast, so uh, it's actually it's actually really fun to be on it. Oh, that's great oh, to thank hear. You. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to have you on again. And this is a never never drying up well of, of <laughs> never content ending. here, right? Never ending. <laughs> um, and we should do a special. We should do something because, like, as if the EU is the foils the US often yeah. on matters of tech regulation. Man, the the shit show that is civil liberties in digital civil liberties 
in, that is Great Britain yeah, yeah, yeah. right now is, is a, oh, real, God. a real mess. Yeah. And it's an, and it's huge impact and investment in the space. I mean, there's really good, even early evidence on how this has affected the internet ecosystem mm. in the EU, that it's actually seriously suffered in the last two quarters because of it. So, yeah, yeah. Good, good for them. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, and on that note, until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.